The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please follow in your Bible as I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 3, picking up right where we stopped last time in studying this beloved epistle. I know many of you have said to me how much you love Philippians, and you join many Christians in that love. As we've seen Paul, a prisoner, it would seem a person at a dead end in his life and maybe even facing death itself, really quite unchained in his passion for his Savior. And I begin reading at verse 17 through the first verse of chapter 4, Philippians chapter 3. Here is the Word of God. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they may be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is God's holy word. Before his death in 1990, a well-known British journalist, Malcolm Muggeridge, wrote some things that reflected on the contrast he saw between this world and the world to come. You may not know the name of Malcolm Muggeridge, but I can assure you in England it was as well known as Walter Cronkite or some of the other great spokesmen for world affairs. Muggeridge was a war correspondent in World War II, a social critic and commentator, a man who had a biting wit and a sharp pen. And the remarkable thing about him is, as a very worldly individual for most of his life, he was soundly converted to become a believer in Jesus Christ as an older man. He wrote this one time to fellow Christians. Let me quote him. I have come to realize that a Christian's ultimate disaster is in feeling too much at home in this life so he forgets his true homeland. We are aliens staying here on a mere temporary visa. We are citizens of that other kingdom whose Lord is Christ. And then he said, sometimes on a given day when I am most immersed in the affairs of earth, a sense 
that I am an entire stranger to human society steals upon me. And I remember this world can never be my true home. Well summarized, of course. And I ask you if you have ever had that same feeling of not fully belonging in this present world. C.S. Lewis talked about days when, speaking, of course, of his own literary work, he caught the whiff or scent of a breeze from Narnia blowing through this world. As daily news reports show you crime and scandals and terrorism and war and sexual depravity and political shenanigans, I wonder if you don't ask yourself sometimes, in what sense do I really belong to this society? It seems so foreign. It seems like a place that I cannot call home. Well, last week, Paul's emphasis in Philippians 3 was on a forward thrust in his thinking and faith towards that high calling of God, that final event which would bring to completion his resurrection hope. He was a possessor of the power of the resurrection already, even in his prison cell. But he longed and he spoke of his passionate, explosive desire to more and more know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He was focused almost like a laser beam on that deeper experience of trusting Christ and walking with Christ so that he could say, I do this one thing, one thing captivates me. No matter what else is going on in my life, my great concern is to know Christ and know him more and more until that day that he truly and fully makes me his own. Well, Paul wasn't supposed to be offered to us as some kind of singular, uh, unheard of, weird example of that passion. He, in fact, urged us that that passion be ours as Christian disciples. And now today we hear him going on by showing us that in a real sense, every life comes to a fork in the road when it comes to the cross of Christ. And every life from that cross goes down one path or the other. Either you go down the path that he calls being an enemy of the cross, or you go down the road of knowing you are an adopted child of God in Jesus Christ, and therefore you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And Paul is using the device of contrast here, as he so often does, and saying, you live in one of these worlds or the other. You live in this present material world by almost all material stimuli and goals, or you live in a world that looks to God and looks to the resurrection and the great event of being finally united with Christ. It's one way or the other for everybody. And either you're a person being governed, in effect, by the spirit of Antichrist, or you're one who consciously submits mind and action and heart and desire to be possessed by Christ and to know him as fully as you can. Our daily conduct will reveal which of those paths of belief and hope we are on. You could illustrate it if you thought about an American living almost any other place in the world. Let's pick Beijing, China. If you were an American 
working there for some reason, you would certainly mix with Chinese people, and they would recognize, I would think, immediately that unless a few of you may happen to be Chinese, but most of us are not, they would recognize that you are not native Chinese. Your, your language, even if you attempted to speak Mandarin, if you spoke their language, they would, you know, excuse all the little slips and, and wrong things about your accent because you're not a native. They would see that you stand out. You have different attitudes, different ways of behaving. And similarly, the Christian stands out that way in human society. We're driven by motives and values that are tuned to an inner clock, a different time zone, you might say, the time zone of a spiritual kingdom. And if you know you are a resident bound for heaven's land, what one great hymn calls Emmanuel's land, you will resonate with the citizenship of that land. So today we're just examining several exhortations from Philippians 3.17 and following, to guide us in a Christ-centered and Christ-consumed walk as citizens of heaven while we remain resident aliens upon the earth. First point then in verse 17, Paul advises us, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. He asks us to be imitators of himself. He says, choose whom you will imitate. I read some interesting material this week that told me some things I didn't know about a, a great preacher and leader and writer today, Dr. John Piper, one of the finest preachers in America, I would say. But in 1966, John Piper was a college sophomore who happened to be very shy. He would never have wanted to stand up and face an audience and speak to them. It was something that paralyzed him with fear, interestingly enough. And John Piper was a pre-med biology major at Wheaton College. But in the fall of 1966, he contracted a debilitating illness, mononucleosis, that put him in the health clinic for a week or more. He was there on his back, really unable to do much, uh, fairly weak, and he had a radio, and he listened to the radio and did a lot of thinking. And Dr. Piper tells about that day when he was 20 years old. Hearing that radio, he listened to the preaching of Dr. Harold J. Ockengate, then the pastor of uh, Park Street Church in Boston and a seminary president. I can tell you from personal experience that there are few preachers I have ever heard more arresting than Harold J. Akenge in the prime of his pulpit powers. He was an amazing speaker. And Piper heard him preaching, expounding the word. He was a preacher's son, by the way, but he said, I never heard preaching so rational, so solid, so utterly compelling in all my life, and it changed my whole life. The day he was able to get out of the infirmary, he said he went directly to the registrar's office and dropped his pre-med major because he believed he had sensed God's call that day, listening to Harold Ockengay, to become a preacher who would make the gospel that compelling, who could imitate that kind of preaching to reach people the way it had reached him. Well, don't we learn many, many things by imitation? 
What are children doing much of the time when they play? You know, let's play house. You're the mom. I'm the dad. Here's what we're going to do. And children play, and they imitate what they see adults do. And certainly, no matter what skill you want to learn in life, we have internships and apprenticeships and so on where you are put with an experienced person if you want to learn to fix a transmission or paint with watercolors or any number of many, many things. You go to somebody who knows how to do that, and you watch what they do. And then you inexpertly try to copy what they do, and at first you seem to be just fumbling, but if you're working with a person who's skilled, your motions and your practice will become better and better. And I can identify very much with John Piper in saying that whatever little I do know about preaching came from imitating a few choice models, and Dr. Akengay was one who did it very, very well. Paul isn't boasting when he tells people, imitate me. It sounds boastful, but it isn't. Because he had already made it very clear in this letter in chapter 2 that the prime exemplar who needs to be imitated is Jesus Christ, the example above all. And it's very clear that if you would see what humility and servanthood are, you look to Christ, and that salvation simply means conformity more and more to the likeness of Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I'm the moon, in a sense, Paul said. Christ is the sun. He's the source. If you follow me, do so only as I reflect some gleam of light from Christ. But you see, he was, he was knowing here that people will only learn the power of the gospel when they see it actually alive in some other human life. It's one thing to hear the propositions and read the books and, and understand uh, Christianity and the gospel as a religious, you know, statement. It's quite another thing to see it alive and see a life that demonstrates it. Now, one way you can get that, by the way, is is to read biographies. If you're a reader, let me encourage you. Go to our library. I don't mention our library very often, but there are many wonderful things there to read the biographies of great missionaries and preachers and, and leaders of Christianity, martyrs of the past. You can learn and pick up things, and subconsciously your attitudes and your thinking will imitate things that you learn from the saints of the past. But you still need live models. You need people that you know, that you can see walking about and speaking in your world. And let me urge you, as a Christian, whatever stage of development you're in, it would be worthwhile to to actually sit down and ask yourself, who are those living Christians hopefully somewhat more mature in the faith than myself, who I'm looking to and I'm trying to grasp the attitude and the conversation and the behavior and what they convey of Christian faith and living. Single out in your thinking, who are those people? And concentrate on them. And maybe even ask yourself, well, what am I learning most from this or that individual? Here's the amazing thing. As you grow older as a believer you get to this point where the people you have modeled yourself upon, the people you have imitated, have graduated to heaven. And all of a sudden, the realization dawns on you that there's a generation looking at you, and you're the one now that they're imitating. That's pretty humbling. And you have to be able to say to them what Paul said, follow me 
only insofar as you get from me, and I'm not sure how you do it, but if you get from me some authentic glimpse of what Christ is, then follow that. Imitate. Choose whom you will imitate, those who show Christ. Well, moving on into verses 18 and 19, then, we see Paul starting to portray this contrast between two opposite ways of living. First of all, showing us those he calls the enemies of the cross. And I think he's saying here we ought to tremble to think of enemies of the cross. I tell you with tears, there are many who live as enemies of the cross. Now, by trembling at these people, I don't mean we fear them. That's not what Paul did. He wasn't afraid of them, but he had deep emotion about them. It really upset him, and he considered it a tragedy. Now, you say, I don't know who we're talking about. He didn't name anybody. Who were these people? He had named some other people before who were teaching things that, that were wrong and wrong emphases and so on and were legalistic. They may have been one and the same people. But let me tell you this much. We know he was talking about people who had some formal attachment to Christianity. He wouldn't have shed any tears over these people if they were outright pagans who simply hated Christianity. Why weep over them, in a sense? He wept over those who said, I bow before Christ, and then went out and showed something very different in their lives. Their conduct betrayed a profession of faith that seemed to be false. You might say Paul knew some people who wore the cross of Christ in a manner of speaking, at least on a gold chain around their neck. The cross was stamped on them. I'm a, I'm a man of the cross, they might have said. But the power of the cross never penetrated their living. The power of the Holy Spirit had never renovated them, was not at work in them. They were not submissive to the Word of God. They had never come to Jesus Christ admitting how lost and dead they were in their sin and how much they needed to surrender to his lordship. And Paul wept about these people because he saw a form of Christianity without the power. And of course, that's prevalent in every generation. And what he had to say about these folks was terrible. He said, they're headed for eternal destruction. You go study that word, and Paul says, there's no hope for them. You think I'm in a dead end in a, in a jail cell. Well, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to be resurrected at God's right hand. I'm not caught in a dead end. These people are. There's nothing ahead of them but irreversible separation from God forever. Now, you say, how would I recognize? I mean, if these people are around today, how do we know who they are? They don't wear name tags. They don't come and sit down. You know, you wear blue name tags if you wear one of ours for the church at I am John Doe, Westminster Presbyterian Church. There's nobody that comes in with a red name tag that says, enemy of the cross, Bill Smith. That isn't the way it happens. They're identified totally by their conduct. The true life of a disciple of Jesus Christ who is a friend of the cross is marked by humility and self-denying service. We've seen that in this epistle. Now Paul says the enemies of the cross, you know them because their whole conduct is based on the diametrical opposite, which is self-indulgence. The NIV says their God is their stomach. The 
King James uh, said their God is their belly. In other words, their animal instinct, their animal being, in a sense, is their God and guides them. They're, they're material people who indulge sensual material appetites that dictate all their conduct and seeking creature comfort and power and luxury and happiness at the material level is all that they're concerned about. And then he goes a word beyond that in, in this verse here, verse 19. Their God is their stomach, and then he adds this phrase, their glory is in their shame. You're driven here back to Romans chapter 1, where that fundamental analysis of real unbelief is. When Paul writing to in Romans one twenty one and following shows how people turn from the truth of God and they quickly assemble material substitutes around them and begin to worship material things. And I, I remember as a young man thinking how strange it was that that passage bridged so quickly into perverted sexual practices. Their foolish hearts are darkened and they, they change the natural use of sexuality into the unnatural. And I used to think, why was... Why did that come to the fore so quickly? But I think I understand it better now. That when you worship the material and when you obey the mere human appetites of your gut, you might say, as Paul's writing about here, you're going to really be living off your lust, your greed, your hungers for material things. And so there's no surprise that perverted sexuality would quickly come to the fore. You would turn God's system of morality inside out or upside down. We should never for a moment imagine that the emphasis of the late 20th and early 21st centuries upon homosexual practice being celebrated as a virtue, as something normal, as something absolutely acceptable, is something new. It isn't new. It was there when Paul was writing in the first century. And Paul was saying, does anybody bring the cross into greater disrepute than somebody claiming Jesus died for me and then going out and taking that which the Word of God says is a perversion, is shameful, ought not even to be spoken of, and says, let's glorify this. Let's parade this. Paul says, no, this reverses the way of the cross. And in Philippians 3, 18 and 19 here, he's just echoing what many other passages say about there being two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, obedient to the word of God, subservient to the cross, and the kingdom that lives by the flesh and lives by the values of the flesh. If you say, I'm a man or woman of the cross, then you're saying, I am crucified along with Christ. And he's putting to death those animal instincts that that simply guide me to exalt that side of my nature. In Galatians 6.14, Paul said, May I never boast in anything except the cross of Jesus my Lord, by which the world is being crucified to me and I to the world. Is there evidence in you of this? Evidence that although you still sin, of course, although you still struggle with sexual temptation and all of these material things, although you have your your greedy moments when you, you know, you're 
just want to go after money or go after some luxury and get out of the way everything else. Hey, we all sin. But the question is, do you habitually justify immorality and put that on the throne and say, this now is what will be exalted? If you do that, the Scripture's saying you are an enemy of the cross. You're living absolutely contrary to the pattern of the cross. And so for the third point, he raises in verses 20 and 21 the alternative, life according to a heavenly citizenship. The assertion is there in Scripture that anyone who is a believer in Christ who has come to him for new birth is now adopted into the kingdom of God, is one of the phrases. Under the influence of the resurrection, we've been given a new citizenship. This time of year, I feel very keenly pressures that are put on pastors of congregations. I get things in the mail, pastor, are you rallying your people to vote for the right folks? No, I'm not. It's not my business. People want to say, Pastor, your main job is to support some kind of revolt or change or influence upon people in terms of their citizenship of the United States of America. And we answer and say, citizenship in this country is a very important thing. Salute our country's flag. Use your vote, little plug, for a week from now. Be responsible as a citizen. Be interested. Be concerned. Be involved. Defend your nation. It's a free land. It's worthy of honor. But remember, you have a higher citizenship. And that's the citizenship the church is here to call you to, not to tell you how to vote in this political climate. Our governing authority is the supreme power of all, not the president, not the Congress, not the Senate, not the Supreme Court, all valuable institutions. We obey a power above them. Ephesians 2 says, once God has made us alive in Christ, he raised us up to be seated with Christ in heavenly realms. We're actually given a seat in the kingdom of God. Now you say that's a spiritual sounding expression. Yes, it's spiritual, but it's a reality. You already belong to that kingdom. Hebrews 11 tells about Abraham and other people of faith who, quote, admitted they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth looking for a country of their own, and God has prepared for them a city, a city with foundations, whose builder and maker is God, which is saying in so many words, Washington, D.C. does not have the foundations of that city. And we live as citizens of that city as resident aliens in this world. We're not completely at home here. And we look at people living only by their base appetites or their political goals or voting morality by saying, oh, well, you know, 67% of all people now think this is right. Who cares? If they're contrary to the Word of God, they're wrong. It doesn't matter. We're ruled by the power of God who has revealed His mind and His heart. We're not ruled by 51% or 67 or 97% of people who think contrary to the Word of God. We're in this world, but we're not of it. And we're not completely governed by it. 
And Paul is saying, look, even our bodies, you see, these bodies that he was just speaking a moment ago about people who use their bodies for things that are shameful, why, they're going to be glorified. Our lowly bodies are going to become like Christ's body when this Savior comes. Verse 20, we await a Savior from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power he has is going to subdue all things to his control, including even This tawdry flesh of mine, this flesh that's always opposing my Christian life, that can't concentrate very long when it prays, that that, that wanders and, and disobeys and is allured away into sinful things, this flesh is going to be remade. I live in that hope. The Bible calls it the blessed hope that God is going to transform us and complete his resurrection work. Remember, Philippians 1.6 said he would. He who began this good work will bring it to completion. When? In the day of Christ. When is that? He hasn't told us. He hasn't told us the date quite deliberately so we would live expectantly, so that we would actually live and dare to imagine it could be today that we would be glorified. We live under that blessed hope. And John in 1 John 3, 3 said, everybody who has that hope in him purifies himself. It has a, a shaping effect on him, just as Christ himself is pure. In a word, I've put it to you today that we are to live here as if we were already there. And we can. Even your weak body. You say, oh, I don't have the power. It's difficult. I can't do it. Wait a minute. What power is going to do this? The power of the resurrection. The power in our text that will, will bring all things under his control. Not yours, his. You can ask for that power. You can say, Lord, I'm too weak. I can't do it. Give me your power today. I failed badly yesterday. I need that resurrection power. I'm pressing toward that blessed hope. I know where my citizenship is. And as you go along, other believers in the church of Christ will furnish examples you can imitate. Enemies of the cross should be visible to you so that you can tremble before the choices that they make and avoid those choices. And splendid hope that trains its gaze on a grand future with Christ should ever be before you. You need to be renewing that hope day by day by day. What's Paul's final word here? Stand firm. Stand firm. Look at all that is on your side. By God's grace, you really can live here as if you were already there. Father, we ask for that strength day by day, that renewing of the power of the resurrection, that same power by which you are going to remake and subdue under your control everything that opposes you now, everything that shouts curses against you and and works against you deviously now in this world. And so in living in that power, claiming that power, knowing that power has already remade us and is remaking us in the image of Jesus, we once again pray, O Lord God, we want to know you 
and the power of your resurrection. And we pray, even in the midst of our satisfactions with this world, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come and complete what we know you are going to do. Amen.